Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I've been instructed to give a non-technical talk, and in this talk I'm going to be explaining behaviors that obey the golden rule, uh, not the golden rule itself. And in doing so, uh, I'll be making some points extremely briefly, uh, which I wrote out in this book, uh, this little book a few years ago, The Neuroscience of Fair Play. Here's the problem. Uh, a, a few years ago, actually January of, 19, of 2006, uh, in New York City, a few uh, months before I wrote this book, uh, a guy was standing, Wesley Autry, uh, was standing on a platform, a subway train platform in New York City, and the person next to him had an epileptic seizure and fell onto the tracks, and a train was coming. Wesley Autry uh, jumped down onto the tracks and pressed both of them uh, onto the tracks such that the train could pass over. And in fact, it was so close that lubrication oil uh, was then having to be wiped off from, from the engine, was having to be wiped off of Autry's head. Now, now why did he do that? He was uh, not of the same racial background as the guy he saved. And in fact, when he jumped onto the tracks, he left his own young son uh, up on the platform. And so my job over the next few minutes will be to talk about brain mechanisms that would allow a human being to do that. I'm proposing that human behaviors obeying an ethical universal, I'll claim that the uh, golden rule is at least widespread, uh, can be explained by neuroscientists, and I'll put forward a parsimonious theory to do so. In other words, I'm not going to make special assumptions. I'll be treating an ethical universal, or at least the widespread rule, the golden rule, as a natural scientific phenomenon. So as your eyes are skimming down these quotes, I'll tell you that uh, many, many years ago, I spent a lot of time in the history of religion section of, uh, uh, of a college library. And if you'll permit a double negative, I couldn't find any religion that did not have some kind of statement, a golden rule type of statement. And so what you have here is Confucius, you have uh, 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 Christianity, uh, you have uh, uh, Islam, uh, and it doesn't take a, a, a religious point of view in order to say something like this, because here you have Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, uh, which is a philosophical statement and not a religious statement. So I was encouraged to think of golden rule-like behavior as something that might have a biological basis and that I, as a neuroscientist, might be able to explain it. I got further inspiration, I was doing this a long time ago, I uh, got further inspiration uh, from Axelrod at the University of Michigan and Hamilton. Uh, they showed in their science article that even computers can be programmed to exhibit reciprocity in their behaviors. There's nothing magical about the mechanisms proposed in, in the book that, whose, whose title I showed you. And what Axelrod and Hamilton did, this is the famous W.D. Hamilton, was to hold a tournament uh, among computer programs using the game Prisoner's Dilemma, which I'll show you in a minute. But the take-home line is that a simple two-step program won the tournament. Step one, cooperate with the other computer, and step two, do what the other computer did on the previous step. And the Prisoner's Dilemma, as you probably know, at least some of you will know, works like this. Prisoner B and Prisoner A have committed a crime. And the uh, authorities are trying to get them to defect. In other words, they want B to defect and tell on A, in which case B gets a high payoff, the, the way the game is set up. Uh, and they also try to get A to defect and squeal on them both, in which case A gets a high payoff. But the fact is that n neither A nor B know what the other one is going to do. And so the way the game is set up is that cooperation gets the highest total score. 
So what I figured was that if uh, a rule that humans seem to behave, uh, or at least they're told to behave, in virtually all the cultures that I could read about, and uh, is likely to have a biological basis, uh, and if it's even computable, then I, as a neuroscientist, and thinking about this in my spare time, uh, might be able to explain it. So the main purpose of today's talk is to put forward this parsimonious scientific theory, which I'll explain in the simplest possible way, and how, of how we manage to behave according to the golden rule. What I won't be able to do today is honestly to envision the balance between CNS mechanisms for altruism and those for aggression. That's in the book, and we'll talk about that in more technical terms uh, tomorrow. So how does this work? It's a four-step theory. Step one is uh, represent one's impending actions to oneself. And it turns out that this, this uh, step one is grounded in classical neurophysiology. And I'll give you a pictorial example. Suppose you're looking at a scene and you move your eyeball to the right. The main question is, when you move your eyeball to the right, does the world appear to move to the left? And the ob answer is obviously no, and the question is why. The reason is that as you move your eyeball to the right, the oculomotor uh, system sends a command signal to the visual system, and this command signal is called corollary discharge. If the main discharge uh, uh, moves the eyeball, the corollary discharge is the one informing the sensory system involved that something's going to happen. Thus, we expect the world to move in a certain way when we make a carefully calculated eye movement, which is registered in corollary discharge, and we, it, it accounts for the stability of the visual world. The big, that, that's Ray Offeren's theory, and that's at least 50 years old. To the earliest demonstrations of corollary discharge, which I just talked about, those involving the oculomotor system, have been added many studies involving other types of movements. Uh, if you'll permit me, a mot motor physiologist's view of the embodied mind, quotes the embodied mind, you'd say that, quotes, we are the individuals whose movements we can predict. So the current theory, which I'm talking about today, simply extends that classical reofference theory that I told you about to social acts with an ethical import. So that's step one. Represent your own mo uh, the movement you're about to make to your own sensory surfaces or your own sensory physiology. Step two is to envision the, envision the target of one's social action, one social action that has moral import. And this, again, is grounded in solid neurophysiology. The first person to record face neurons in the infrotemporal cortex of the monkey was Charlie Gross, Bob DeSimone and Charlie Gross in, uh, at Princeton University. And they used electrophysiological techniques, but Nancy Canwisher at MIT used imaging techniques. And they, they and many people since them then have defined the face areas, for example, in the infrotemporal cortex uh, and they show how these uh, neurons can respond specifically to faces. So I imaging um, the target of your action is no problem. But now we get to the main point. This, this is the, the gimmick. Uh, it's to blur, or we could say merge, or we could say uh, have cross-excitation between the target's image with one's own image. And it turns out that with known neurochemistry, this, again, is easy to imagine how it's done, although it's never been directly demonstrated in the context that I'm speaking about today. And I'll give you uh, three examples. The first is simply, and I've talked about this with Nancy Canwisher to make sure that I was, I'm not a cortical physiologist, and so I wanted to make sure that I was barking up the right tree. First easy way uh, to, to, to decrease the performance. That what that's what we're asking for, is the decrease of performance 
of sensory physiological systems is to add noise to cerebral cortical activity. One way of doing it is to block inhibitory synapses, block GABA synapses. A second way of doing it is to uh, construct gap junctions, which are tiny tunnels between nerve cells and allow charged particles to go from nerve cell A to nerve cell B, thus accounting for a spread of excitation, thus allowing the blurring of perceptual images. A third thing is to play games with cholinergic inputs. The same cholinergic neurons that in your basal forebrain you're maintaining carefully because you don't want to get Alzheimer's disease have incredibly complex physiologic effects in at least two layers of the cerebral cortex and can ramp up and ramp down the sensitivity of those cortical mechanisms uh, extremely easily. So that's one way. A second way of uh, decreasing uh, 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 perceptual clarity, uh, that is to merge one's image with the image of the, uh, uh, um, the object of one's actions, is to alter timing. This was Nancy Canwisher's idea. Now, altering timing in these systems completely screws up performance. A third thing that you might have heard about, a third mechanism, is mirror neurons. This was discovered in the um, laboratory of Giovanni Rizzolatti in the University of Padua, Italy. And what it was is that they were recording from uh, a monkey, a monkey's neuron on the premotor cortex that responded uh, when the monkey moved its, his hand like that. And during lunch, when one of the uh, experimenters was holding a cup of coffee, the neuron on the other side of the room began to fire. Uh, the monkey was, was treating the other person's action, the experimenter's action, as his own, merging the image of the other with his own. I think this is awfully easy, at least theoretically. And I can ask the metaphorical question, if we're talking about a computational device in the brain, is it simpler to improve a computer's performance or to break it? And step four is decide. If, as a result of the first three steps, you see that the, uh, this is uh, a good action toward the other, uh, toward, it would be a good action toward yourself, then you do it, and if it isn't, uh, then you wouldn't. My assistant is a professional artist, and so I can indulge in a brief cartoon before finishing up. Uh, uh, this little guy with the gun uh, has already uh, 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 represented his, the impending action to himself, namely shooting uh, this big fellow. Notice their hair and notice their shirts. Now he's going to envision the target of his action and the result of shooting the fellow, blood pouring out. And now, as you, if you notice the hair and the shirt, we're going to merge the images and at step four, the decision, we're going to do what no American male does between west of the Appalachians or east of the Rockies, um, <laughs> which is to, uh, to throw away his gun. So in, in finishing up, I'll just ask, is this an elegant theory? An elegant theory is one that gets a, a lot of implications with having very little special assumptions. In this case, no special abilities are presupposed. Richard Dawkins would be very pleased. Uh, secondly, it's, e it's easier to make a mechanism work lousy than it is to make it work better. We're asking for a blurring of perceptual uh, uh, images, not a sharpening of them. Thirdly, as I illustrated just uh, thinking about the current literature, actually the older literature, uh, there are many, many ways to throw off cortical perceptual function. And here's the key thing, is that all of these can work. They're not ex all of those p possibilities that I talked about are not mutually exclusive of each other, and they could work with different strengths and different individuals. So there's a tremendous amount of flexibility and therefore robustness uh, with the theoretical output of this theory. So uh, to keep within time, I'll finish up by leaving you with the little red man. Uh, in, in this uh, artistic depiction, uh, this little red man's feet is touching the earth 
and the hands are supporting the sky. And so I attended uh, a, a gallery opening with the, the contemporary Chinese artist uh, Lu Shengzhong. And quoting from, from Lu, similar forms can be found in early civilizations from many parts of the world. As the earliest self-portrait and the earliest evidence of self-awareness, the shape illustrates congr congruities among early civilizations. He's talking in artistic terms uh, about the same thing as we're trying to talk about in uh, proto-scientific terms. Our theory, our neuroscientific theory, makes use of self-awareness merged with other awareness uh, to explain behavior that uh, obeys an ethical universal. Thank you. Compared to our nearest ape relations, humans are particularly other regarding, not necessarily uniquely eager to share, but extremely eager to share and to cooperate, even with non-kin. Spontaneous helping and voluntary gift-giving are documented for every human society ever studied. Even quite young children will pick out uh, something that they have reason to think someone else will particularly enjoy and spontaneously offer it. Uh, nevertheless, as Christophe just explained, there are conditions, uh, and it may depend on which computer you use, but there are conditions when chimpanzees as well do help one another. Uh, for example, common chimpanzees sharing some meat or a bonobo female allowing some other female's to, infant to remove some food from her mouth. But these tend to be preceded uh, by begging, uh, and often more nearly ex uh, illustrate scrounging than the spontaneous and considered gift-giving that we see in humans. Uh, when combined with intention reading, which is not unique to humans, but very well uh, elaborated in humans, uh, these other regarding impulses equip humans to coordinate with others to achieve common goals, as in the case of these Kayapo tribesmen, and they've waded into the water, and they're beating this timbo plant with sticks, nothing here beyond Stone Age technology. They're releasing a toxin into the water so that women and children can come around with baskets in the shallow water and gather up the stunned fish, a tremendously valuable protein resource not available to other apes. Um, so why haven't other apes gone this route? In one of the more ambitious efforts to try to uh, understand exactly where the differences lie, uh, Mike Tomasello's team at Leipzig have designed a special battery of sociocognitive tests, and they've compared 105 human children, two and a half years old, 106 chimpanzees, 32 orangutans. And just in, in light of what Christoph just said, I actually agree with his criticisms, but I cite these studies because they're the best we have. Um, they are captive animals, yes, indeed. Uh, okay, uh, what they found was that in the realm of spatial 
cognition, remarkably similar capacities, quantities, assessing many versus few, very similar causality, what happens when I push this with a stick, it falls over, very similar. Where these creatures differed was in terms of social learning, watching a demonstrator solve a problem and then doing it the same way, communication, reading where I'm pointing, and what psychologists call theory of mind, attributing a mental state to others. Now look, it's not that chimpanzees and orangutans don't have these capacities, indeed they exhibit them, it's that humans are better at them. Okay, why? Well, I used to think, oh, sure, I know. It's because we've got these brains three times bigger than a chimpanzee's or an australopithecine, brains capable of symbolic thought and language. And then, you know, I started to learn a little bit more about it, read people like Peter Hobson convincing me, whoa, before language there had to have been something else, something that propelled us into language, something that could evolve in tiny steps, that could make... One person want to join up their mind with someone else. There had to be these emotional links first. I also assume, you know, we have these special capacities. Andy Meltzoff showed us that right from birth, little babies can imitate someone else's facial expressions, this empathy and imitation going on. Oh, sure, that's the answer. We're wired differently. And, of course, now we know that, you know, other chimps as well, right from birth, the wiring is there. Something else is going on. And one of the differences seems to be that little humans get more and more interested in this stuff as time goes by. So that by nine months, for example, a baby will hold something out, an object, and want to know what someone else is thinking about this object. And little chimpanzees don't do this. Uh, well, previous efforts, in fact, you've heard some today, to explain uh, our peculiarly pro-social capacities in humans have focused on selection pressures on males to cooperate in hunting or intergroup conflict and so forth. Yet think about it. The differences are found in both sexes and emerged very early in development. And this is one reason my attention has been drawn to the very different rearing environments of humans and other apes. In all apes, uh, mothers are very possessive of new babies in all the non-human apes, and they are their sole source of uh, nutrition, warmth, locomotion, security. This mother chimpanzee is not going to let that baby out of her touch for one moment, day or night, for the first six months of life. Thereafter, she's going to go on nursing for up to five years. By contrast, uh, women in foraging societies, wherever they have been studied, exhibit a remarkable maternal tolerance, just postpartum, to other people handling their babies. San and Hatsa babies, for example, are going to be held by Allo mothers 25 to 30 percent of the time, right from birth onward. This baby has just been handed over to his grandmother, and she's massaging the scalp. 
Uh, this F.A. infant in Central Africa is going to spend 60% of daytime being held by ALA mothers, which is not to say mothers aren't important. Uh, babies spend the night with their mothers. They're centrally important, the main attachment figure. The point is, unlike other great apes, uh, we are sharing infants with others. Who are these Group members other than the mother, the allo mothers helping to care for babies, well, they're mostly relatives, fathers, brothers, cousins, the male allo mothers. The female allo mothers are mostly sisters, aunts, and grandmothers. Um, why do we need all this help? Well, other apes, once weaned, provision themselves. But human children are going to remain dependent on nutritional subsidies from others for years. If you think it's unusual that your 20-year-old is still at home, it's not. <laughs> Takes 10 to 13 million calories beyond what a child provides himself to rear a human from birth to age 18, far more than a foraging mom could provide herself. And there's going to be a new baby before the older children are mature uh, because interbirth intervals in hunter-gatherers tend to be shorter than in other apes. Well, how is this possible? It used to be assumed that, oh, sure, let's father the hunter. He provisioned his mate, her offspring, in line with a sex contract guaranteeing him certainty of paternity. This is why humans became bipedal, so he could bring the meat back. Well, the problem is work by James O'Connell, Kristen Hawkes, Kaplan Hill, others. The rates of success among hunters with Pleistocene uh, tools at their disposal would be too variable to provide for children who have to eat several times a day. As you heard earlier today, maybe five hunters uh, more than one for sure, and they need to share. And as Chris Baum pointed out, that sharing can often be pressure from below. Don't be stingy or you'll be ostracized. As hominins included more meat in their diet, it would require multiple hunters but, and who would pool and redistribute it, but you also need women gathering plant foods that's more reliably uh, provided. So you need this division of labor coming back to a central camp. Um, well, in line uh, with what people like Kristen Hawkes have been arguing for some time, uh, about 60% of the calories in whether you're looking at San, Bushman, or at Hadza are, being, are due to plant foods brought in by women, and about 40% from meat and honey from men. And the, whereas mothers with new babies are actually bringing in less food, much more than they're consuming is being brought in by these post-reproductive women, uh, Hawks has called them the hardworking Hadza grandmothers, but in fact, they don't necessarily have to be grandmothers. This is a great aunt pulling aside an enormous boulder to get at the tubers underneath. These post-reproductive aloe mothers are bringing in up to 3,500 calories a day. Okay, so in order for this kind of system to work, and it's what sociobiologists have called cooperative breeding, that is any species where aloe parents, group members other than parents in addition to parents, help to both care for and provision young, in order for this to work, you have to have quite flexible residence patterns. And you have to have people being able to move between groups, gravitating away from adversity 
towards opportunity, where opportunities are not just access to food and water, but access to kin who will help you, even non-kin who might help you. There's a lot of what Randy would call social selection going on in residence choices. Uh, You can have a grandmother moving to another group to live near the daughter who needs her most because she's got a stepfather instead of a father in residence. Um, A typical hunter-gatherer pattern is for a young man to come live with his wife for a time hunting on her family's behalf before children are born so that she's got kin there when her first offspring arrives. A very vulnerable time across all primates. First births, vulnerable for the mother, especially vulnerable for the infants. So a lot of alloparental assistance going on. Well, some of you um, may still be wondering why would anyone help? And... um, I think that uh, we've already heard today about Hamilton's rule, and I agree completely with Christoph's point. It's not just about Ken selection. It's why I prefer calling it Hamilton's rule. But there are these other factors involved, so that, for example, if a male is very well fed, the cost of helping somebody else is low. If he might be the father, doesn't know for sure he is, he's still going to stuff food in the mouths of these little chicks. But what's interesting is that if over time uh, it's been advantageous to help someone else's young, the threshold for responding to cues like a gaping mouth goes down so that you can have mistakes like this cardinal stuffing mouth Uh, food into the mouth of a gaping goldfish. Uh, And it turns out that in highly social species with particularly helpless young, uh, other group members are especially susceptible to enticing cues from baby. This is my uh, neighbor's Jack Russell Terrier who chased away a very surprised mother cat Uh, began to spontaneously lactate, adopted her kittens, and reared them. Uh, This happens in non-human primates as well. This is a Cebus monkey who adopted and nursed a baby marmoset that she found abandoned in the woods. Uh, These misdirected parental care examples happen. Well, our species, humans, is wide open to babies as sensory traps. And this is well-known to Madison Avenue, well-known to filmmakers. Some of you may have seen the recent blockbuster film, Babies. Look at the film, but then turn around and look at the audience. They're all just agog, no wonder. Uh, We know that the orbitofrontal cortex and the regions of the brain that are set up for rewarding us when we see something we like light up when people look at babies, and it is true for both parents and non-parents, for males as well as females. Uh, So even though in other apes, infants are cared for exclusively by mothers, across the animal kingdom, cooperative breeding has evolved many times. We don't need to talk about how special humans are to explain it. It's found among social insects, 9% of 10,000 species of birds, maybe 3% of 5,400 species of mammals. It's especially likely to evolve in the social carnivores and in non-human primates. 
and human ones too, I'm about to argue. Um, Allomaternal care of infants is found in over half of all the 300 to 400 species of primates that are out there. Uh, Shared care and at least minimal provisioning is found in perhaps a quarter of these species. However, only in humans and in the subfamily Calotrichidae, that's marmosets and tamarins, do you have full-fledged cooperative breeding. That is alloparental care plus extensive alloparental provisioning. And what's interesting is that many of the conditions that predispose other animals to evolve cooperative breeding pertained among our ancestors. Uh, Obviously very social groups, benefits to group membership, benefits to philopatry, benefits to sticking around and being exposed to those enticing cues from babies that are dependent for a long time. Uh, Animals uh, with combined foraging techniques, uh, hunting and extractive foraging, uh, bringing food back to a central place where it can be shared, which probably our ancestors have been doing since perhaps 1.8 million years ago, Homo erectus, and also temporal variability in rainfall and eco-instability. This is just a uh, chart from Rick Potts's work at Lake Orlogasali in the Rift Valley, where uh, one of the sites our hominin ancestors used, showing that the period between 1 million and 600,000 years ago Uh, tremendous variation in rainfall as that lake goes from shallow to deep to shallow. Uh, Recently, ornithologists have shown that seasonal variability in rainfall is especially associated with the evolution of cooperative breeding in birds. Uh, Okay, uh, just a quick uh, mention of these marmosets and tamarins. Um, Like humans, uh, these guys, uh, they're very excellent colonizers. Uh, And one of the things about cooperative breeding is that when times are good, they can speed up breeding, but when times are bad, they can manage to hang on. And one of the things I would suspect is that the name of the game among our ancestors, with very high rates of child mortality, uh, very hard time uh, really making it in Pleistocene Africa was that the name of the game was not so much mating success as success keeping at least some offspring alive, assuring the proper component in your group of effective hunters and motivated gatherers. Um, Okay, so uh, these marmosets also have unusually developed other regarding impulses. This is true among wild marmosets where uh, other group members, not necessarily related to the infants, but sometimes related to the infants, uh, provide about 90% of the food in some species for just weaned infants and in the lab as well. Christoph cited that, that study of chimpanzees in captivity showing very little other regarding impulses. Under similar experimental conditions, captive marmosets uh, show unusually other regarding impulses, great deal of concern for the well-being of others. Uh, I don't have time to talk more about them today. What I want to turn to now, though, is what can we say about the psychological implications of cooperative breeding for little apes reared in what for an ape would have been a completely novel social context? Well, we don't have a time machine to go back and see, but we can study their still extant 
human descendants, among whom psychologists document that babies off their mothers spend more time looking at faces, monitoring eye gaze, uh, and so forth than when they are in physical contact with her. And even without taking evolutionary considerations into account, uh, we know from psychological studies of infants in Western societies that the presence of a maternal grandmother is correlated with increased mother's sensitivity to her baby, more secure mother-infant attachment, enhanced cognitive ability by age four, presence of older siblings correlated with uh, more sophisticated theory of mind, multiple caretakers correlated with enhanced capacity to integrate uh, multiple perspectives. Also, we find in our species an unusual ability, even in very young children, to assess the motives of others. Uh, infants shown a cartoon of a yellow square helping the little red ball get up and a nasty blue square pushing the little red ball down. Afterwards, the children will reach out preferentially to the helpful symbol, figure out uh, reputation there. So I want you to join me in a thought experiment. Take a highly intelligent bipedal primate with the cognitive and the manipulative potentials, the rudimentary empathy and theory of mind found in all great apes, then rear that ape in a novel developmental context where maternal care is contingent and the infant depends on care and provisioning from multiple caretakers. Subject this novel phenotype to novel selection pressures such that infants best at mind reading and best cared for are also going to be the best fed, most likely to survive. What do you get? In high child mortality environments, you get directional selection favoring just the traits, enhanced mutual tolerance, social learning, social communication, perspective taking, that comparisons with other apes require us to explain. So what I'm suggesting is that long before behaviorally modern humans with symbolic thought and language and before the evolution of big-brained anatomically modern humans, you have the emergence of emotionally modern humans already questing for intersubjective engagement uh, with others. Uh, what you have as a byproduct then are the precursors, the building blocks for some of the later developments um, that you're going to be hearing more about today. So what I've been talking about is simply the prequel to the main human feature film, but some very important building blocks for the kind of social selection that Randy, for example, is talking about when he's saying, how do we explain the peculiarly other regarding impulses that we find in humans that possibly emerge from social selection? You need these building blocks first. Thanks. So what I want to talk to you today about is the, what I call, Rob Boyd, my co longtime co-author, and I call the tribal social instincts uh, hypothesis to explain uh, human cooperation. So this is a, 
uh, particular proposal. It's a little bit Baroque. There are a bunch of pieces, moving parts here, but maybe that's uh, uh, reasonable for a complicated organism. And it follows up on Patricia's remark that culture uh, perhaps plays an important uh, role in the evolution of human capacities to uh, form large societies, to cooperate, to uh, engage in altruistic uh, uh, behaviors. So the argument here is, is as follows. I'm going to argue that uh, uh, cultural evolution is a Darwinian process, so that culture is a system that evolves in its own right. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, the genetic inheritance system, but it's a little bit different, and uh, interesting th things happen, uh, particularly because of the differences. And then that uh, genes and, and culture uh, co-evolve, that uh, the, 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 the evolution of these two processes influence one another, that we're bound up, uh, our phenotype is, is bound up proximally in genetic and cultural causes, and that over evolutionary time, uh, these two uh, evolutionary processes interact in, in strong uh, ways. It's not so, they can't be uh, dissected apart. You know, they, they don't uh, operate in isolation. Uh, I'm going to argue that uh, cultural evolution is faster than genetic evolution, that that's really what it's for, is a, a system of adaptation to attract uh, rapidly changing environmental processes, and that uh, as a consequence of that, it's going to tend to be the leading process in this coevolutionary process. First, culture is going to change. And then genes are going to change in response, so that the uh, genes are kind of in the driver's seat, at least late in human evolution. And obviously, as humans became more and more cultural over the last few million years, this, uh, the uh, tendency for, uh, for culture to have a big and leading impact will have increased. And I don't want to get into too much of a, of a debate about the exact timescales here, but uh, I'll try to convince you that, that at least uh, that, that this is a plausible uh, thing uh, to have uh, have happened. Uh, so uh, the idea then that uh, in the Pleistocene, humans were selected at the level of uh, groups based on cultural variations, and then that elements of our uh, social psychology uh, co-evolved uh, to produce uh, docility and prosociality. We've just heard ab about, uh, in the last couple of talks, about the, uh, uh, the proximal mechanisms by which these kinds of things can be implemented. That doesn't seem to be, at least in principle, a big uh, problem. So the idea that uh, cultural evolution is Darwinian, this was appreciated uh, by Darwin and, and uh, students of linguistic history way back in the, in the 19th century. Both languages and uh, organic forms uh, seem to uh, evolve by the descent with modification. And this uh, idea uh, uh, didn't do very much work until uh, 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 the last uh, quarter of the 20th century or so when a number of us got interested in, in trying to... Uh, uh, study formally the cultural system of inheritance as a uh, as an inheritance system and, and try to draw out the uh, evolutionary implications of it. And as I've already mentioned, uh, cultural evolution is is rapid. It's rapid because uh, cultural evolution doesn't depend just upon random variation and, and natural selection to uh, uh, provide the main motor of, of evolution. Uh, the uh, cultural system of inheritance is, is coupled to our decision-making capacities. To some extent, we can pick and choose amongst uh, uh, what uh, cultural items we borrow from other people. We can uh, try to figure out what's successful and borrow that differentially. We can sometimes in, uh, invent things that... Uh, 
uh, through processes of individual learning that are better than random variation. And so these decision-making forces tend to make uh, cultural evolution faster than, uh, than genetic evolution. And, and we have an idea about why the uh, uh, climate variation in the Pleistocene is the original uh, uh, motor that uh, drove the evolution of cultural capacities in humans. There are a bunch of other differences between the cultural inheritance system of, of humans and, uh, and the genetic system of inheritance. Or, uh, capacity for more than two parents. We're sort of polysexual, right? We can, we can make cultural love to most anybody we, uh, we uh, take a fancy to uh, uh, where, and you know, we can have lots of cultural lovers where uh, uh, children uh, can only have uh, two parents. Uh, uh, so there's a fair, by now, a fairly well-developed theory that's uh, derived from these kinds of uh, considerations, and I, I don't have time to do more than give that uh, uh, brief uh, summary. Now, the idea that uh, genes and culture co-evolve, for a long time, uh, our best example of this, or one of our best examples, was adult lactose absorption. Maybe many of you know this uh, story. So in most humans, like most animals, uh, at the, about the time of the age of weaning, we stop uh, uh, secreting eating lactase in our, in our gut because uh, lactose, milk sugar, is, is uh, what uh, 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 babies have from their, from their mother. It's an important source of calories in, in mammalian milk. And once we're weaned, we have no more use for that enzyme. Now, in a few uh, uh, human populations, uh, Northwest Europeans, for example, and uh, some dairying populations in Africa, cattle-keeping populations in Africa, uh, people do drink a lot of fluid milk, and they have evolved uh, adult lactase uh, secretion. So there's a, and, and presumably the, the uh, business of dairying came first, and then people uh, kept cows and uh, managed somehow to use uh, uh, milk, and, uh, and then uh, the, they weren't getting the advantage of the uh, uh, milk sugar calories out of the milk, and so there was selection pressure for humans to evolve adult lactase uh, uh, secretion. It's an easy thing to evolve. The, the uh, regulatory enzyme is just broken. It's broken in two different ways, one way in Africans and one way in, in uh, Northwest Europeans, at least uh, two ways, or maybe more. Uh, then there are these, uh, in this diagram here up in the upper right, are the uh, percent lactose absorbers as a function of whether the population is daring or not. The uh, Number two up there are Northwest Europeans. Uh, number one down there, East Asians, a, a whole collection of people, Africans who don't uh, have daring and have low uh, percentage of lactose absorbance as adults. And then there are these intermediate populations, typically that make use of milk products uh, uh, that like yogurt, where the uh, lactose is uh, fermented uh, uh, by bacteria rather than in the, in the human gut. So you, the, the intermediate populations there give us a picture of how this might have, have evolved, uh, that people started with uh, uh, those kinds of products, uh, milk products, and then uh, the ability to, to get, uh, uh, to digest lactose evolved uh, more or less gradually. So this is a case where agriculture, dairying, cattle keeping came and, uh, uh, and drove the evolution of a dietary adaptation to this, uh, to this cultural uh, practice. Now, it, it seems on uh, some recent evidence, at least, that, that this is just a tip of a, of a great big iceberg. So this is some data uh, reviewed by John Hawks and co-authors in PNAS a few years ago uh, that uh, shows a huge wave of uh, uh, selected variants that, that occurred in the, apparently in the aftermath of agriculture. Uh, some of these are also classic variants like uh, resistance to various kinds of 
of alleles for resistance to malaria, which we also uh, think is very recent and grew up with the expansion of human populations under agriculture uh, to uh, uh, process. When human populations became numerous, then we acquired many epidemic diseases, and therefore we acquired things like sickle cell and uh, for resistance to malaria and many other alleles for resistance to malaria, and probably lots of other things. So most of these uh, dots in this diagram that suggest that there's this big wave of, of uh, response to uh, selection in Africa and Europe uh, 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 just after the evolution of agriculture. Most of the functional significance of those is dimly understood, so we still don't know what most of that's all about. And in fact, there's some considerable controversy about whether the uh, techniques for detecting these uh, selective sweeps are yet very accurate or whether selective sweeps are the main kind of response. But at least there's a, a strong suggestion here that uh, uh, in the case of the origins of agriculture, there was a, 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 a huge wave of coevolutionary response to this uh, cultural change. So we have some kind of confidence that this kind of process can work. And the question is, did it happen uh, further back in human evolution uh, to uh, drive the evolution of, for want of a better word, our social instincts, the innate components of our social psychology, the, our, our docility and other uh, features that make our, uh, our ability to run these cooperative societies uh, possible. So uh, the Rob's and my argument is that humans are uh, susceptible to, uh, uh, uniquely susceptible to group selection. Maybe unique is too strong a word. That uh, uh, the cultural variation that is so predominant in our species is uh, more susceptible to uh, group selection than is the case for uh, genes. This is a famous quote from the uh, Descent of Man, where Darwin argues that uh, the selection of tribe against tribe would uh, lead to the evolution of, of uh, uh, fidelity, obedience, courage, sympathy, uh, patriotism, and these uh, uh, virtues of, uh, of, uh, that make social life possible. And that this would be a form of natural selection, he said. Uh, uh, so he was treating this as a special case. Darwin wasn't a, uh, a, a, a wholesale group selectionist at all. And, uh, but he didn't really put his finger, I don't think, on why humans are a special case. So why is it that uh, uh, cultural evolution might be uh, susceptible to uh, uh, group selection, more susceptible than the, is the case of genes? So uh, as I mentioned, uh, Robin, I think that uh, culture originally rose as an adaptation to uh, uh, Pleistocene climatic chaos. So I don't know if you follow this, but the, uh, in the last glacial, there were these huge uh, variations in, in climate. And it turns out that these have been apparently been ramping up over the last uh, few uh, glacial cycles. So uh, humans and other animals have been getting bigger brains over this uh, uh, period of time. And so the uh, 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 organisms in general have been under pressure to, to, uh, to adapt to more variable environments. And in the case of humans, this took the form of, this, uh, of using this uh, uh, faster system of inheritance to track these environmental variations so that our advantage uh, relative to other animals is that we can deploy culture to evolve uh, adaptations to uh, ephemeral kinds of environmental uh, variations or resist uh, better the uh, uh, catastrophe that ensue when the environment uh, uh, changes uh, uh, regularly, or excuse me, changes at high amplitude and irregularly. 
Uh, now, there are features of the cultural system that uh, predispose this variation to uh, uh, group selection. First is just the rapidity of it itself. Uh, uh, so two isolated or semi-isolated human populations will tend to, to diverge faster than two, than two uh, other animals' populations, or for that matter, the human cultural variation will diverge faster than, the, than our uh, genetic variation. There's also the, this uh, problem that, or this interesting feature that, that uh, social uh, games often have multiple equilibria. So two separated populations are likely to get, if they're coordination equilibria, driving on their left-hand side of the road versus the right-hand side of the road, uh, separate populations will get on different equilibria, and then it'll be hard for them to get off of these equilibria. So the uh, social interactions uh, will tend to stabilize uh, equilibria. Uh, we've studied a process we call uh, a conformist transmission. If you tend to, uh, to uh, imitate the common type in, in your population. There are good adaptive reasons for supposing you might often want to do this. Uh, that discriminates against migrants uh, or other rare types that in the population. It tends to, uh, uh, to uh, stabilize whatever uh, uh, cultural feature becomes common in a particular group. So this is an engine for uh, protecting groups from the effects of my cultural effects of migration and preserving variation uh, between groups. Uh, so the whole problem of, of group selection is, is, uh, is preserving variation between groups. Uh, a little bit of genetic migration goes a long way toward uh, dissolving uh, uh, the variation between groups. And so the, uh, the question is, can uh, cultural evolution pr uh, preserve more variation? Uh, success and prestige biases can uh, generate variation uh, uh, between uh, uh, groups. Uh, so uh, prestige has a runaway process, uh, for example, so that we can get uh, groups diverging as, as prestige criteria uh, uh, diverge. Uh, punishment uh, is uh, powerful. We've already heard about the importance of punishment for punishing cheaters. But aside from punishing cheaters, uh, punishment uh, mechanisms have a tendency to stabilize anything. So Rob and I have an old paper in which we argue that uh, a punishment will stabilize cooperation or anything else. If, every, if we have moralistic punishment, if, if uh, most of us are willing to punish people uh, who don't wear ties to meetings like this, uh, which would have obtained a, uh, a couple of generations ago, we'd all been wearing, all the men would have been wearing ties. A few of them still are, not many. Uh, uh, we won that battle. Uh, uh, but so, so you could stabilize any silly thing, right? If, if the majority majority of people are willing to punish people for doing any silly thing, then that will stabilize that silly thing, or maybe not so silly things. Uh, so it, it, again, it's a process for uh, generating and maintaining variation between groups. We mark the boundaries of groups uh, uh, symbolically. So uh, uh, we, uh, uh, we may define in-groups and out-groups in, in terms of things like dialect and dress and, and other things, and uh, that has a tendency to retard the migration of cultural variants across uh, these groups. And then uh, the, uh, the, all these things uh, tend to lead to the evolution of what sociologists and some economists and political scientists call institutions. They're, they're uh, 
characteristic forms of social organization that everyone, in a, in a, or most people at least, in a, in a social system conform to because there are sanctions for not conforming to them and rewards for conforming to them. So much of our social life is organized around institutions, and, and these are really just characteristic of the different societies. So they're, uh, it's, it's almost as if uh, humans are, are different species in terms of their social organization as far as institutions are concerned. We have one kind, somebody else has another kind, and, and the, even if individuals migrate back and forth, they'll tend to conform to the institutions of the host society that they, uh, that they migrate into. Their genes will come, but their culture uh, will tend not to. And, and then secondarily, genes adapted to uh, life in tribes uh, by this process of gene culture coevolution. That's our argument. Uh, it's certainly true, I think, that uh, anthropologists have told us uh, since forever that uh, uh, humans are hugely variable culturally. So, uh, uh, but anthropologists, uh, for the most part, haven't been interested in putting numbers on things. And uh, uh, people like, uh, like uh, uh, me are really interested in putting numbers on things. So this is an attempt to put numbers on the uh, uh, genetic variation between human groups compared to the cultural variation between human groups. So Adrian Bell, a student of ours at Davis, uh, uh, got together the data from the World Values Survey. That's the gray bars there, representing probably mostly cultural uh, variation. The, the uh, dark bars are from Cavalli-Sforza and uh, uh, Feldman's uh, uh, classic, Cavalli-Sforza and co-authors, not Feldman, uh, uh, treatise on human uh, uh, genetic variation. So these are neighboring groups. So what would be relevant for, for group selection would be neighboring groups. So this is the, and we use the, the same statistic to analyze both sets of data, FST, the proportion of variation between groups relative to the total variation. And you can see that, that the amount of cultural variation is on the order of, a, uh, of a, 10 times greater than the uh, uh, genetic variation. So there does seem to be a lot more cultural variation uh, between groups than genetic variation. And this doesn't take account of things like, uh, like institutions that don't show up uh, directly in, in attitudes. So uh, uh, cooperative behavior is, is common in tribal groups. We have many examples of it. Food sharing's already been mentioned uh, uh, today. And uh, uh, there are lots of other examples. Warfare, uh, there are real deaths in warfare. And uh, uh, trade uh, is important. Uh, Peter Hammerstein uh, remarked that to, to make uh, a trade and economic systems go, you need to have third-party enforcements of contracts. That's a cooperative adventure. adventure. The state usually organizes that sort of thing and pays judges and, and so on to, uh, to implement those kinds of things. So the uh, trade and the division of labor are, are, co are cooperative enterprises and the enforcement of moral, uh, moral norms. Probably these things go back a long way. This is uh, 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 evidence of symbolic marking of groups in the Upper Paleolithic, these famous uh, uh, so-called Venus figurines that are stylistically fairly uniform all over the, over the whole of Europe, as if this was one, uh, one giant ethnic uh, group, giant area, probably not that many uh, people. But this, so the, uh, the 
period of time over which this coevolutionary process has gone on could be uh, quite long. So what is the evidence that there are uh, innate uh, uh, social psychological uh, co-evolved mechanisms? Uh, the uh, uh, group uh, that was led by uh, uh, Joe Henrik, whose I think name has come up uh, here earlier, uh, he did an ambitious uh, study with a whole slew of co-authors, mostly anthropologists, who studied these uh, 15 uh, uh, different groups, small-scale uh, societies. So they were interested in, in uh, people's propensities uh, to cooperate across these groups. And they used a, uh, the ultimatum game, which was to, devised by a fellow named Werner Guth to... Uh, do people know the ultimatum game? Most people probably do. So the ultimatum game is that I'm given a, a sum of money and I can divide it uh, uh, any way I want with Sarah. And, uh, and then, I, so I make an offer to Sarah, and Sarah, if she's not satisfied with the offer, can say to hell with you, and, uh, and then we, neither of us get anything. So the, uh, this game was devised because the selfish, rational optimization uh, argument is very clear about what uh, uh, we should do. Usually there's, to, to, for technical reasons, there's a minimum offer I have to make, say, 50 cents on the out of $10. And so if I'm rational and selfish, and I'm confident that Sarah's rational and selfish, uh, uh, I will offer Sarah the minimum, 50 cents, knowing that uh, 50 cents is better than nothing. And, and Sarah knows this, and she's rational, so she wouldn't throw away 50 cents just to spite me. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, what people actually do is uh, uh, quite a bit different. Uh, so these are mean offers. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh there, uh, rather, is, uh, is typical of, of American college students. We heard uh, uh, American college students uh, properly disparaged as, uh, as uh, experimental subjects by Christoph. And, and so, uh, but you can see that there are some uh, people who make even higher offers, uh, offers averaging above 50% in the La Malera, and then down to the Kichu and the Machiganga and some groups where the, the mean uh, offer is, is four, uh, 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 well, excuse me, the uh, quarter of the, uh, of the total, about 25%. Uh, uh, and this is a distrib the distribution of offers, if you're interested in that. There's almost always a mode at, at a 50-50 uh, split. And in lots of societies like Pittsburgh, if, the, if I were to offer... I don't know exactly what Sarah would uh, would take, but I'd be taking my chances uh, with the average American undergraduate if I offered uh, 25% of the uh, of the stake. It's safest to offer 50%. Hardly anybody re rejects 50% uh, offers. Now, again, the prediction is that that uh, uh, if people were underneath it all, rational and selfish, then at least some societies should show uh, uh, offers of uh, zero or the or the minimum, and there don't seem to be any such society. So this is taken, this, the argument here is that this is evidence of some kind of instinct for uh, fair play, that, that humans are, uh, tend, have a tendency to, to engage in fair play, albeit with a huge amount of cultural variation from one to the next. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.